I got flying cake pans. I got crazy horses. Whoa! Welcome to Date Fight. It's the podcast where we take two moments that occurred on this day in history and pitch them against each other. Yes, we do. He's Jake Yap. I'm Nat Tapley. And together, we have trolled through the zoo of history to find the two fightingiest and most interesting animals to make them battle in a possibly illegal, garage-based way for your love. And do you know what we... And entertainment. And do you know what we realised the most fightingest animal was? Humans. What was man. it? Man. Actually, actually, man. <laughs> like, specifically... <laughs> Man as in men. Yeah. <laughs> oh, mate. It's just so depressing. Maybe the most fightingest animal was in our hearts all along. <laughs> I'm going to take you to... Have we explained it enough? Doesn't matter. Moving yeah, it's on. fine. It's fine. I'm going to take you to the 23rd of January, 1795. We don't usually do naval battles, but this is a good naval battle. It was the capture of the Dutch fleet at Den Helder. So deep in the night of the 23rd of January, 1795, the French, who, lest we forget, were about to get into 20 years of fighting everybody under Napoleon, but he wasn't in charge yet, the French captured the entire Dutch fleet at Den Helder. The 14 Dutch ships and 850 guns were in the sea between the port of Den Helder and the island of Texel, um, and they were all taken without a shot being fired. Wow. Now, how many ships do you reckon it took the French to do that, Jake? Well, 14 ships that they took, I'm going to say 12. Zero. What? Zero ships. They used no ships, but only horses. That's incredible. How do you... Wow, so... It I, is. It's I, one of the I few examples we have. Got, I think I've got it. Yes. They got yes. a massive lorry full of horses and tipped them into the harbour, <laughs> thereby stranding the fleet. Um, well, think of what time of year it a is. A horrific horse dam. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, the Dutch would have liked that, I'm sure. Dutch make a dam out of anything, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> They can't see anything without wanting to damn it. No, you have to think what time of year it was to work out how they did it. It was frozen! It was frozen indeed, and this is one of the few examples we have of a cavalry versus naval battle, and what they did was they crept up in the dead of night, put tiny little horseshoes on their horses' feet so the Dutch wouldn't hear them clopping over the ice. Horse slippers. And horse slippers and then crept up which I imagine they're doing like Bullseye from Toy Story. Yeah, and with, accompanied ice. by pizzicato strings. Uh, And they got there, and the Dutch went, Oh no, you have captured us all. Um, In whatever voice the Dutch had. (laughs) I wasn't going to say. I wasn't going to say. It started okay, then it went Italian halfway through the second sentence. All right, let's leave it. Let's not go back and do anything about that. Let's leave it in. I can't do Dutch. I feel like there's lots of people who I I judge. People tend to just. That's being inferior to me. That's a terrible thing to say, but but they can all do Dutch accents. But they just do sort of quite sensible ones with S's rather than S's, don't they? That's the typical Dutch. Yeah. That's what people go for. It's not really. showing any insight into the yeah. Dutch mind. Well, it's just copying what was on the Grolsch advert in the late 90s. It's just like a slightly kinked Sean Connery, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, so the French crept up in there with their horse slippers. Uh, the ice didn't break and there were no French casualties. At least that's how the French tell it. The Dutch historians tend to say that they'd already surrendered and two hussars came over on horses and collected their 
official surrender, but the French loved to claim they crept up in their lovely horse slippers overnight and captured the entire Dutch fleet on the 23rd of January, 1795. That's deeply impressive, uh, if only for the pizzicato and the slippers. (laughs) I'm going to take you back to the 23rd of January, 1546, and having published not a word for 11 years, François Rabelais publishes the Tiers Livre, the third book, which was his sequel to Gargantua and Pantagruel. Now, the first two books, I don't know if you're... Are you familiar with them? Of Gargantua and Pantagruel? Yeah. Um, Isn't that that the one with the giant that eats its own poo at one point? Uh, I don't... They're stupendous-sounding books. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah, Yeah. so um, they're about a giant, Gargantua. Yeah. And talk about nominative determinism. Anyway, he's born. (laughs) As a baby, he wears a yard-long codpiece. Does he, Causing three nurses to fight over him. (laughs) (laughs) And he grows up and basically spends a lot of his sort of young adulthood just drowning thousands upon thousands of people in urine. Lovely. So uh, attention then moves on to an absolute danger when it Mm. comes to Renaissance bands called Panurge. Yeah. And there's a battle and a guy called Epistemon, who's decapitated, uh, recovers when Panurge sews his head back onto his body. Um, But he can report that the souls in hell, uh, he can tell you what hell is like. Basically, you just don't get very good pay and the jobs aren't very good. But that's as bad as it (laughs) gets. It's much like France now. Now I think of it. Much like it is here. (laughs) And every Englishman would agree. Yeah. Good work hours, though. And then another battle happens, but that gets missed by the narrator because he's exploring the civilization in Pantagruel's mouth at the time. So with bonkers stuff like that, where do you go from there? The third book, I'll say, is is pretty meh. Uh, What happens is Panurge is now financially solvent Mm. and stops wearing his long codpiece and starts looking for advice about who to marry. That's lowered the stakes somewhat. Yeah. He consults with various counsellors, the Sibyl of Panzust, the mute called Goat Nose, and the old poet, Ramina (laughs) Grobis, Friar John, a group of doctors and lawyers, and a fool. And they all say, if you marry, your wife will cheat on you, and she'll beat you, and she'll rob you. Uh, But he decides to uh, do it anyway. Oh, dear. I like the idea that they're saying, that mute, does he mind being called Goat Nose? He hasn't said anything about it. No. Seems fine with it. It then says, uh, in a brief interlude, Pantagruel defends Judge Brindlegoose, who's pronounced sentence by rolling dice for 40 years, on the grounds that he's an old idiot (laughs) uh, and is therefore favoured by fortune. Then, trying to settle the question of marriage, Pantagruel and Panage take a sea voyage to consult the Oracle of Bakbuk, Divine Bottle, Mm -hmm. and their ship is well provisioned with the phallic herb Pantagruelion. Oh, lovely. I, can I just take you through book four? Because that's when it really yes. comes to a head. <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat. Please do. The group sails to East Asia and buys many exotic animals. <laughs> Panurge quarrels with the sheep merchant Ding Dong <laughs> and takes his revenge by drowning him and his flock. Oh. They pass well, by the on. islands of the... That's yeah, not, why do you take revenge on the flock? You argue with the shepherd. You don't then get right. This will learn you after you're done i'm going to drown all those sheep as well there's no point in taking your revenge on the flock and you, you sound do you know what you sound like you sound like a vegan <laughs> they pass by the islands of the bailiffs whose peasants charge to be beaten 
Then there's uh, a storm, they slay a sea monster, and a giant dies, and then they arrive at Wild Island, where the half-sausage inhabitants <laughs> mistake Pantagruel for their enemy and attack. The battle is stopped by a divine-winged pig who excretes mustard on the battlefield. <laughs> then they go to Ruach, where people eat air, to Pope Figland, where a farmer and his wife outwit the devil, and then they sail through a cloud of frozen words and sounds and come to an island that worships Gaster, the god of food. And the book ends when Pantagruel fires a salute at the island of the Muses and Panurge befouls himself for fear of the sound. <laughs> and of the celebrated cat, Rodilardus. I like it. I'll give you two million for the rights. I mean, what free writing. Yeah. 500 years ago. That's brilliant. Who, um, who do you see in the lead? Yeah, I think I think this this screams Adam Sandler vehicle to me. <laughs> Jason Statham. <laughs> <laughs> wow, amazing! Did it go on after that? Was it just the four books? There, there was a fifth book, but it's not really of his style. Do you know what it is? It's epistolary. Uh, it's no. they think <clears throat> largely kind of reconstructed by the publisher. Um, and most of it, most of it is lists of uh, a name of something. I can't. I can't of Rabelais' unpaid bills. The fifth book has has some fun stuff. Uh, so there's an island called Tool Island. Does it have a winged pig that excretes mustard, mustard on a battlefield? Over a battlefield? No, yeah. no. But it, it's got uh, people who live on a, an island called Tool Island, and they're so fat that they have to slit their skin to let the fat just trickle out. <laughs> But he, he invented hundreds of new words in the text, and some of them have become part of the French language. Oh. Don't ask me which ones. Rabelaisian. Yeah, that'll do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right, let's do the birthdays. birthday to John Hancock, the founding father whose extravagant signature on the Declaration of Independence led to his name being a byword for signatures everywhere. Put your John Hancock right there, they said to John Hancock, and he did. Oh, I, I, okay, that explains the court case. <laughs> well, that is where it's from. His extravagant signature is why, uh, a signature is a John Hancock. Yeah, but when someone told me to put uh, my John Hancock there... <laughs> Which they, did you do first, hand or...? They had to shut down the whole branch yeah. of NatWest. Happy birthday to Django Reinhardt, who was the best at something that sounds awful. I mean, jazz guitar sounds like possibly the worst time you can have, but it's not when he does it. It's OK. That's Django Reinhardt. Was he one of those ones with nine fingers? He was, wasn't he? He's got loads of fingers, hasn't he? He's off too few. Is it too few or too many? Nine. I think he had nine. Which is too few? Don't know, I'd have to look it up. <laughs> uh, happy birthday to the Danish robot stout vendor, <laughs> Rutger Hauer. Um, just to let you know that putting uh, Django Reinhardt into a search engine, uh, the first suggestion that comes up for a search is Django Reinhardt fingers. And I'm hoping that's not a verb. <laughs> Yeah, precisely. Try putting in other names after it and see what comes up. He only had two good fingers on his left hand. What? So he could only play, like, really simple chords, but... That would explain his kind of block chording stuff, right? Yeah, as long as you've got two that function, you're all right, aren't you? Yeah, so he he was in a fire when he was 18. Oh, wow. And uh, he lived in a gypsy caravan, so obviously it was all made of wood and... 
his common-law wife, Bella, was making artificial flowers out of paper and celluloid, which was really, really flammable. Ooh. And he knocked over yes. a candle and the flowers ignited and uh, it was engulfed in flames. Oh, wow. That's the incredible. That's the kind of information someone who brought the person up in the podcast should have looked up, really. Amazing. The doctor, the doctor wanted to amputate his right leg, but he said, no, I'm going to go to a nursing home, and he got better. Wow. But the two smallest fingers on his left hand, crucial for mm. fretboard work, were paralysed. So he invented his own method of playing. Amazing. Yes, you can see when you watch him play, he does sort of, he reaches all the way over with sort of the top of his hand. Yeah. Happy death day to Isabella, the Queen of Armenia. She was the Queen Regnant of Cilicia, and Constantine of Barbaron was appointed as her guardian. He arranged her marriage to Prince Philip. Yes, he is that old. The son of Bohemond IV of Antioch. But when he arrived, Prince Philip despoiled the palace and stole the crown and sent it off. So they put him in prison. Was there mustard? Um, was there, sorry, did he despoil it with mustard? Or? I imagine there was mustard everywhere. <laughs> uh, not not Dijon, grain mustard. Oh, OK. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> At which point Constantine of Barbaron um, tried to marry Isabella off to her, his own son, Hetun, in 1266. Uh, she married him, but refused to ever consummate the marriage. She died, having heard voices from heaven a few years later. That's Isabella, Queen of Armenia, who died on this day in the 13th century. Happy death day to Edward Munch, whose The Scream was the inspiration for Home Alone. <laughs> And <laughs> there are so many great artists today, you could just do great artists. And so I've gone for Happy Death Day to Gordon Kay, the cycloptic star of Allo Allo, which I sorted because my wife went on tour with him in 2000, I think, and she has a lot of very filthy Gordon Kay stories, which I'll tell you all in person, but not on a recorded medium. We need to do a meet-up. Yeah. <laughs> the tour included Gordon Kay, Vicky Michelle, Ken Morley and Carol Harrison um, doing a farce called Business Affairs and, yeah, what goes on tour stays on tour, but I will whisper it in your ear if we're ever in the same vicinity. Perfect. I'm going to take you to the 23rd of January 1957, but I'm going to scoot 20 years earlier than that. Oh. So a very distant cousin of John Wayne, Mm. a guy called Walter Frederick Morrison. Yes, I was going to say the Morrison family. Is mucking about in the garden with his girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. uh, Chucking a a popcorn can lid about. Oh, dear. This never ends well. And uh, the trouble is... It got a bit dented, uh, and so they were like, well, what can we chuck at each other now? I know, cake pans. Mm. And then they went to the beach in Santa Monica, uh, now married, uh, Walter Frederick Morrison and his wife, Lucille Eleanor mm. Lune. Uh, they were on the beach in Santa Monica and chucking their cake pan around, and someone said, that looks like a lot of fun. I'll give you 25 cents for that cake pan. Mm-hmm. And Morrison said in an interview, that got the wheels turning because you could buy a cake pan for five cents. And if people on the beach were willing to pay a quarter for it, well, there was a business. Yeah. So they developed the flying cake pans business <laughs> on the beaches of Los Angeles. What do we call it? Flying Morrison's cake flying cake pan. Now, the thing was... <laughs> the finest in flying cake pans. Mm. This was just the beginning because during the Second World War, 
Uh, Morrison learned all about aerodynamics flying right. a P-47 Thunderbolt in Italy. Not quite enough because he was shot down oh. and was a prisoner of war for 48 days. He had a lot of time to think then. Well, quite. And time passed by. And in 1946, he sketched out a design because if there's one thing this guy knew, it was good names. Mm. Uh, for the Whirlow Way. The Whirlow Way. The world's first flying disc. Mm. And then a guy came along called Warren Francioni mm-hmm. and paid him for... Uh, paid to get the design moulded in plastic and they called it not the Whirlow Way but the Flying Saucer. <laughs> and no one bought it. No. And they parted company. But then... The Pluto platter got developed Ooh. by Fred and his wife, Lucille. And this became the archetype of all modern flying discs. And on January the 23rd, this very day, in 1957, mm. they sold the rights for the Pluto platter to the Whammo Toy Company. <laughs> I'd and love to have a toy company in the mid-20th century. The names were incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Six months later, they started calling it a Frisbee. Oh, where did that name come from? I mean, it's quite a jump from Pluto Platter. Well, I can see where Pluto Platter yeah. comes from, but Frisbee... Yeah, well, interestingly, uh, it was uh, college students in the Northeast just started calling it a Frisbee as a nickname. Ooh. And they were like, yeah, I think we'll go with that. And he carried on developing products for Whammo, uh, but nothing was as good. <laughs> Is it other discs? <laughs> yeah, other things. It's the roller. It's the raging roller. You can roll it. You can leave it on the floor. The Saturn Circle. No, he didn't. No. Uh, and uh, the Neptune Noose. And uh, Fred and Lou uh, divorced in 1969, but then remarried in 1971. Oh, that's nice. But then divorced again. Oh, that's not nice. So. That was that. But what a ride, eh? Wow. What a ride. Just think, if he thought a bit harder, he could have come up with Morrison's. <laughs> um, I'm Who gonna... sell Frisbees? Do they? Uh, no, Let's I don't check. Who goes not. to Morrison's? No. <laughs> I'm going to take you to the 23rd of January, 1571 and the opening of the Royal Exchange in London, which was the first purpose-built commercial building in Britain. Previously, if you wanted to see a cobbler, you had to go to a cobbler shop. If you wanted spice, you had to go to a spice merchant shop. And if you wanted syphilis, you could go to a knocking shop. But (laughs) there were no purpose-built buildings where groups of merchants would get together, um, which also included offices and things. Stockbrokers, by the way, were not allowed in when it opened because their manners were too rude. So they had to sell stocks from Jonathan's Coffee House elsewhere in London. The original building burnt down in 1666. The second building burnt down in 1838. But rather than taking this as a sign that maybe, you know, they shouldn't have Royal Exchange, it was rebuilt. Um, Lloyd's Insurance was based there originally before they went to South Sea House. The coronation of every new monarch is announced on the steps of the Royal Exchange. Um... Which is a bit odd. I mean, I think... Yeah. Announce it in the newspapers, but don't go to Britain's first... Essentially, the first shopping centre. Like, the prototype for Blue Water to announce it. Westfield, Buckingham. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Nowadays, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you can hear soulful singer Dee and her band, the finely groomed The Gents. Uh Um, (laughs) And I think, if your big selling point of your band is how they're grooming, maybe you should look at getting a better band. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I may be being very unfair to the gents. Um, It goes on to say... um, Love the gents. They will be 
luring guests with their mellow acoustics of old school R&B, jazz and blues. I am so there. So the jet. Yeah, let's go listen to The Gents uh, by sitting in the open courtyard of the Royal Exchange, eating, this is what they suggest eating, crepe Suzette. Oh. Doused in Fortnum's gin, pineapple and honey syrup, maraschino, strawberry ice cream, and black olive. Oh. Topped so with, with you. soda water. Oh. Yeah, until I got to black olive and soda water, I imagine most You decided were. that fizzy brine was the way forward. <laughs> I don't know. The people at the Royal Exchange, as in touch now as we were in 1571, when we were opened by Queen Elizabeth I. Anyway, that's why it was the prototype for all office buildings and all shopping centres. So that's why I'm saying that the Royal Exchange ruined Britain. There you go. But has it ruined Nat's chances of winning today? That's my link. Let's find out. You can vote. If you go online, you can go to twitter.com slash date underscore fight. If you go to Facebook, you can go to facebook.com forward slash date fight. Yes, and you can vote and we will decide the winner on Sunday. We won't decide it. You'll decide the winner. You will decide uh, it. We'll announce You're it on charge. Sunday. Yes. Uh, also, I put my forfeits up on social media. You can have a look at that. So <laughs> anyway. Have a look at that. It's made it all worthwhile. Yes. 79 episodes and it suddenly is all paying off. Yes. Um, that's it from us for today. I need to go yes. fairly abruptly as there's a quite substantial jar of mustard. Uh, that needs to get put in the fridge. <laughs> I, we will see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Bye. Bye. <laughs>